You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. All right, our sermon text today is going to be from Isaiah chapter 42, uh, verses 1 through 9. Let me uh, pray for us. Mighty God, pray that you would humble sinners and exalt the Savior by the power and grace of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Amen. All right, so when I was in high school, I had an uh, image experiment phase. We've all had one of those. And uh, my image experiment was I was going to be a country boy, um, which is hilarious if you know me. Uh, you know, this is high school. I didn't really like guns very much, didn't like to hunt, um, wasn't really into pickup trucks. And today when I cut the grass, 50% of the time, it's in old khakis. Uh, I grew up in Mountain Brook, so you can just get the comedy of my country boy phase. Um, during that phase... I listened to a lot of classic country music. Merle Haggard, Waylon Jennings, Hank Williams Jr., Johnny Cash, David Allen Coe, and I still love that music. Uh, It's human, it's real, it's gritty, it's just plain awesome. Uh, But there was a Merle Haggard song that used to bring tears to my cold teenage heart, Uh, and it is called Sing Me Back Home, and it's based on a real story. Uh, Merle Haggard was a prisoner. Um, he actually had a real shady past, unlike the new country singers who sing about these things, but there's really nothing real in it. Merle Haggard legitimately went to prison. Um, and uh, so he was in a cell, and a, pri- a death row inmate uh, was being brought down the hall. And he stopped the warden, and he asked the warden if Merle, if, if Merle could sing him a song uh, before he died. And so the lyrics go like this. The warden led a prisoner down the hallway to his doom. And I stood up to say goodbye like all the rest. And I heard him tell the warden just before he reached my cell, let my guitar-playing friend do my request. Let him sing me back home with a song I used to hear. Make my old memories come alive. Sing me away and turn back the years. And sing me back home before I die. So the prisoner obviously had no hope of ever physically returning home. Uh, But he believed that through a song that he could be taken back home to this place of comfort, hope, and joy. Um, And so he wanted to go back to this place um, that was peaceful before he entered prison. So most of us, like the prisoner, um, probably have a before and after dynamic in our life. Uh, There is a desire to return home, to return to an old place of comfort peace, and joy, Uh, and there was a before and after moment in your life, a before and after moment uh, where before things were different, and now on this side, now on the after, you feel as if you were in exile, and you desire to go back home. Perhaps it was a death, a divorce, a revelation, a diagnosis, uh, a tragedy, a trauma, a first sip, a big mistake. Uh, Perhaps it's something as simple as you're in middle school or high school, and you Look back to elementary school when things were so much more carefree and you had recess. Um, regardless, um, regardless, the after is usually filled uh, with some level of pain, sorrow, and lamentation. And in the after, it is as if we are in exile and we have this desire to be brought home. So this language of exile and returning home is very relevant to our passage here in Isaiah 42. God, in the first half 
of Isaiah has just declared that the Israelites will be conquered by their Babylonian enemies and that they will be taken into exile. And so they will live in exile as a natural consequence of their disobedience to God. So in Isaiah 40 through 55, in the second half of Isaiah, God is speaking hopefully and redemptively to the people in spite of their sin. So when we spiritually talk about returning home, about returning from exile, when we talk about it in a past orientation, we are talking about going back to the Garden of Eden where everything was right and everything was filled with harmony. We talk about spiritually returning home, spiritually returning from exile in a future orientation. We are talking about heaven and being in that place of perfect comfort, peace, and joy. But when we talk about returning home in the here and now with a present orientation, we are talking about returning to fellowship with God. Home is in fellowship with God. Home is found in the heart of the Lord. And so in Isaiah 42, the question is not necessarily how do we come home. The question is all about the who. Because you know if you have been in exile, you know that you've been in a place where you just cannot personally, out of your own power, bring yourself home. You have to be carried home by somebody else. And so the person that Isaiah points to is the servant, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to focus on the character of the servant, the mission of the servant, and the guarantee of the servant. So first, the character of the servant. First thing we need to establish is that the servant that Isaiah is talking about prophetically in Isaiah 42 is Jesus. In Isaiah 42, God describes the character and the mission of the servant. Well, then in Isaiah 61, when you jump forward, the servant himself, speaking from a first-person voice, describes his character and mission, and he is basically just reiterating what God has said in Isaiah 42. So when we go to the New Testament, Jesus at the beginning of his ministry in Isaiah, uh, sorry, in Luke chapter 4, he goes up front in the synagogue. He opens up the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61. He effectively says, I am the servant. I am the one that Isaiah was talking to. When you go forward a few chapters to Luke chapter 7, Uh, John the Baptist is in prison. He is about to die, and he is filled with doubt and despondency. He is questioning whether his ministry amounted to anything at all. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you got to throw John a bone. John John just really does not believe that his ministry to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, to be the one who ushers in the coming of the servant, the coming of the Messiah, he doesn't know if it really amounted to anything. And so Jesus says in Luke 7:22, "Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them." So Jesus proclaims that the prophesied works of the servant from Isaiah that they have been fulfilled in his life and that they are being fulfilled. So when we are talking about the character and the mission and the guarantee of the servant, We are talking about the character and the mission and the guarantee of Jesus. So with regard to his character, we see in Isaiah 42 that there is this dialectic of power and kindness. Uh, First, God calls him my my chosen, my servant. He speaks with this uh, this, uh, voice of possession, like this is mine. And he talks about how he is the one in whom his soul delights. So he's indicating that he has this deep affection for the servant that is only consistent with that of a father for a son. 
or the first person of the Trinity for the second person of the Trinity. Secondly, the servant is identified as his chosen, that he has put his spirit upon him. So he has given the servant a mission, which we know is definitive in the life of Christ. Christ came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to remediate the effects of the fall. And then thirdly, the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged until he accomplishes his ministry. He will accomplish his ministry because he lives with a divine perseverance. That's the only way that Jesus could accomplish his ministry is because he was God himself. So this speaks to the power uh, and, and the divinity of Jesus. But then, in chapter 42, he also talks about the kindness and the meekness of a servant. Now, in Isaiah 40 and 41, uh, Isaiah talks about how God will appoint a mighty ruler who will come from the east and who will conquer the Babylonians. He will vindicate God's enemies. And, uh, and it will be through battle and through force. But in Isaiah 42, God deliberately contrasts the servant with this military ruler that is mentioned in, in Isaiah 40 through 41. He writes, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. So rulers of the ancient Near East they were known to draw attention to themselves, to be loud and bombastic and self-exalting. They were known to use force and strength and intimidation to rule their people. That is not the servant of Isaiah 42. The servant of Isaiah 42, quite frankly, is really nice. <laughs> he will operate with meekness and humility. And what does this mean when it says that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick? It speaks to his attraction and affinity for weakness. It speaks to his sensitivity for those who are hurting, for those who are struggling, for those who are in, who are in life's gutter. And so as you think about your personal exile, like you're living in the after moment, uh, the question of the character of this person who can deliver you is critical. Uh, and you see that the servant that is presented in Christ, he has the power of God. He has the power and anointing of God to rescue you. But he also has the kindness and the sensitivity of someone that you can open up to and trust. He has the power to deliver you, but he has the compassion that you can really believe in, that you can really hand your life over to. So this is the character of the servant. So then we have to ask, what is the mission of the servant? Now, twice, Isaiah says that the servant will bring forth justice. And he says in verse 4 that he will not stop until he has established justice in all the earth and to the coastlands or the outer reaches of the world. So it's very clear that the mission that is defined for the servant, for Christ in Isaiah 42, is to bring justice to all the, wor all the world in a complete and total scale. So what, is it, what does justice mean here in this sense? Well, in the Old Testament sense, justice means that all relationships are right. There is harmony in all relationships. Ray Ortland defines justice in the Old Testament in this way. He says justice means fulfilling mutual obligations in a manner consistent with God's moral law. Biblical justice creates a perfect human society. The messianic servant is the only hope for a truly just world. So we tend to think about justice, when we think about it in English and in the United States, as righting wrongs or preventing the powerful from exploiting the weak. And that certainly is a big part of biblical justice. But in the most fundamental sense of justice in the Old Testament, it means that all relationships are right. There is harmony in all relationships. And so when you think 
about living in the darkness of exile, and as you dwell in the sadness of your life, um, there is a good chance that it has everything to do with broken relationships or separation in relationships. Uh, Speaker Brene Brown, her famous TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, she talked about how in the thousands of interviews she has done with hurting people in her life, that it always comes down to this fundamental problem of disconnection, of broken relationships. And so at the most fundamental level, all problems in the world are based in this giant cosmic problem of mankind being divorced from God. And so at the core, the work of justice that the servant will seek is to remediate this fundamental breach in the relationship between man and God to heal that relationship. So in some form or fashion, the darkness of exile in which you dwell relates to this cosmic broken relationship. It could be that someone has harmed you and that is your exile, that you have wronged another person and that is the nature of your exile. Um, It could be that you've made a major mistake and it has created estrangement and human relationship in your relationship with God. It could be that you have just been beat down by the fallen world that has been broken and separated from God. Uh, But regardless, the work of Christ is to heal relationships. The work of Christ um, is to bring you back to God. And no matter what the nature of your exile, whether you're a victim in that exile, whether you're a perpetrator in that exile, regardless, the first step in coming home is always re-entering fellowship with God. And so one of the critical things that is said in Isaiah 42 um, is when God says to the servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people. This is a massive statement to an original hearer. Uh, In the relationship between God and man, there are mutual obligations. And because we are fallen human beings and we are trying to relate to a perfectly holy God, it is absolutely impossible for us to live up to the required standards to be in fellowship with God. And so what it means when God says that I will give you as a covenant for the people is that the servant will live up to all of the obligations, all of the standards that are incumbent upon us, that God requires of us. He lives perfectly for us. And this is so critical because a lot of times when you think about being brought out of exile, there are all kinds of questions related to worthiness. Am I really worthy to be restored? Am I worthy to be healed? Am I worthy to be brought back to God? And Jesus Christ has definitively answered that question because Jesus in his life and in his death, he has lived up to all of the obligations. Your worthiness is based on the blood of Christ. Your worthiness is secured by Jesus himself. So that means that you are always welcomed home. The heart of God, the door of God's heart, it is always open for you. So finally, you know, we have talked about the character of the mission of the Lord. And let's be honest, this all seems way too good to be true, right? It just seems all too free. It seems too easy that God himself would live up to all the obligations on our behalf. And he would just make us worthy as a gift. And he would always welcome us us home. And God knew that his hearers, both the Israelites and us, that we would be skeptical at claims like this. And that is why we see our final point, the guarantee of the servant. God, in his anticipation of our skepticism, he guarantees these promises based on his character. 
He says in verses 5 through 6, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. My, car- my praise to no carved images. God guarantees the promises by himself. He guarantees them based on the fact that he made the world and that he holds creation together. He guarantees it based on the fact that he is the author of life and he sustains all life by himself. And he pulls no punches. He says, I'm the Lord. I'm the only God. There are no other gods. He does not dignify any make-believe gods. And that is that kind of exclusivity is not terribly popular in the pluralistic society that we live in. But I have to tell you that it is so important to know. Because when you are in exile, you need a real God. Uh, I can tell you from my own experience uh, from when my child died six years ago. When you are in exile... All of the existential cream rises to the top, and everything is very clear. And the God of your own understanding has nothing to offer you. The God of your own self-construction, of your own procuring, it has absolutely nothing to offer you. Because in exile, you know that that God does not exist. That God is not real. But the good news is that there is an actual God who genuinely lives to heal, lives to heal and redeem people. That is his business. That is his mission. In verses 5 and 6, God is saying, look, look at creation. It's evidence that I'm real. Look at life. It's evidence that I am here. And so as people who live on this side of the coming of Christ, you know, God originally made these promises of a servant who would come 700 years before Jesus ever came. And then Jesus actually came to the world. He actually healed people. He actually died on a cross. And he actually rose from the dead. And so what that means for us is that he can actually bring you home from exile. He can actually heal you. He can actually restore your life. He can actually bring you to a real place of comfort, peace, and joy. I'd like to close with an invitation from an old, Clint, uh, an old hymn that I grew up hearing in my home church. Come home. Come home, ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling a sinner, come home. Let's pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.